Hello and welcome to episode 57 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray with you as we push off from the pier and paddle out into the deeper waters that lurk just beyond the scorecard of the 84th Masters. Everybody knows Dustin Johnson won the tournament and everybody knows the tournament was played outside its traditional April date for the first time in its nearly 90-year history. But what about the bigger picture? What do we take from a Masters unlike any other? to help guide the game into the future. Rabbit holes are plenty loom on our journey today when we welcome Carolina Golf Club course superintendent, architecture enthusiast, hickory golfer and all-round golf nerd Matthew Wharton to the show. Matthew will be along in just a moment. But first, my co-host and builder of the most complex sandwich I think I've ever seen, Adrian Logue, what was that monstrosity that you tweeted a photo of the other day? It was just a pimento cheese sandwich. That's very simple. The whole recipe for the sandwich fitted into one tweet. Did you actually, that picture you, was that something you built at that, home? That was my lunch. Photograph? That was my lunch on Sunday. It's disgraceful. Would you run out of Vegemite? That was my immediate reaction. Oh, he's out of Vegemite. Send him some. <laughs> well, my mum scolded me on Twitter for, for the lack of nutritional value in it. So she trolls that was you all the hard, penalty. That was Anybody, all the- follow Adrian's mum. She trolls him hard on Twitter. It's fantastic stuff. Hello, Yvonne, if you're listening. I know you do most of the time. Good to have you aboard and thank you for your support. Uh, looking forward to having a chat to Matthew today. We both follow Matthew on Twitter and he's part of a – I'll bring him in in a minute, but he is part of a group. There's a couple of groups I think we hear from these days that we never use. The course shapers who work for architects and course superintendents and those in the turf industry. You couldn't get access to most of the the information that they have and the wisdom they have 10 years ago, but the internet has brought all of that together. We found out what attention seekers they all are now. Yeah, that's exactly right. They love the limelight, it would seem. Find Adrian at adrianlogue.com and on Twitter at at adrianlogue. Find me on Twitter at at rod underscore Murray or here at the Sydney Podcast Studios Complex pretty much 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I so you do that very well this yeah, week. That's good. You could probably take a little lesson. Yeah, that's right. You yeah. Have a listen to that over and over and over. So next week you can do Now it. you're selling past the close. Enough about us. Let's bring in today's guest. His name will be familiar to many from Twitter, where he's an enthusiastic contributor on all matters golf. As I said, he's the course superintendent at Carolina Golf Club. He brings plenty of expertise that is otherwise lacking in this room, I can assure you. He also penned an intriguing essay last year about the Masters and course conditioning, and another one this year, which has just hit Twitter this very morning. Both of them nicely tie into one of our discussion topics today, Augusta National and the broader impact of perfect course presentation on the game around the world. Matthew Wharton, welcome, mate. Thank you for taking some time today. Really really looking forward to having a chat. Nice to finally digitally meet. We've swapped a lot of direct messages on Twitter, but we've never actually spoken, so this is a real treat. Well, thank you, Rod, and thank you, Adrian. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you, Uh, when I when I got the message when I woke up yesterday to join you guys today, I I was just gobsmacked, couldn't believe it. So uh, it's a, a treat for me. No, Happy well, to be here. No, it's a treat for us and it's a treat for our listeners. Let's start with the essay that you wrote last year, mate. You're a regular contributor, as you told us to. I know I've now forgotten the name of the magazine. You literally told us three minutes ago, Golf Golf Course Industry, Golf Course Industry, which is an industry magazine there in the states. You're a regular contributor. You write a column for that. Tell us firstly about the, the essay you wrote last year about the Masters, and then we'll talk about the one that you've written this year. And then, as I said, rabbit holes are plenty loom along that road as we discuss those two pieces. Well, the, the piece that I wrote last year, the uh, inspiration for it was twofold. One, that is, every year around the time the Masters rolls around, you start to hear talk of the Augusta Syndrome. And... The Augusta Syndrome is where golf course superintendents start to bemoan the fact that, well, great, the Masters has been played. Now everyone's going to be out and expect all these absolute perfect conditions, et cetera, et cetera. In in fact, uh, I'm also an international member of an association called the British and International Golf Greenkeepers Association. And they actually had a cover that said the Augusta syndrome on their uh, chapter publication. They, their magazine's called Greenkeeper International. And it was like two or three years ago. I'll never forget. It was the April edition. There's a big, beautiful cover photo of Augusta National and the words, the Augusta syndrome. And they're talking about how, as they're coming out of these harsh, cold, damp, wet UK winters, then everyone sees the masters on television and, the whole cycle starts to repeat itself. And so this was sort of fresh in my mind. And my wife and I were fortunate enough 
we were fortunate enough last year to have tickets to attend on the Wednesday par three day. And the drive to Augusta from Charlotte, North Carolina, where we live, is just a little over two hours. And so we're making that drive really early. She's resting her eyes, so to speak. And I'm just listening to uh, PGA Tour radio because I'm just geeking out on the Masters. That's what I do. And they're telling this story about Clifford Roberts is in his office with a magnifying glass and these tiny little scissors, and, he, and he's snipping off these loose threads on what would be presented to the participants as a gift. And it's talking about how it's not enough to present the perfect gift, but each gift must be presented perfectly. And it just kind of resonated, and it got me to thinking about what separates Augusta National is they uh, strive for perfection as it relates to attention to detail. It's to the nth degree. When you when you walk in the gate, if you've been fortunate enough to attend a Masters, each year something's probably different because they're always making improvements, but it looks like it's always been there and been that way. They're They take care of the attention to detail to the nth degree. And I thought it was an opportunity to say, hey, we've been thinking about this all wrong for years. Instead of bemoaning that it's a syndrome and they're creating these unrealistic expectations, why don't we look to them for inspiration and see what can be achievable if we just start to focus on all the little details? Granted, there are exceptions. Budgets and and staff sizes are limiting factors, but again, the whole premise of last year's story was just, let's use Augusta National as an inspiration as opposed to bemoaning it. And I will say one other thing about last year's article that that fascinated me and really caught me by surprise. A few weeks after that article went to print, I got an email from one of the assistant superintendents on the staff there thanking me for the article and telling me how much they appreciated the fact that I kind of gave them some praise, et cetera. I think we all just take for granted that they are the best of the best in the business. And we, we just overlook the fact that, you know, they too are just looking for someone to acknowledge that they've done a, you know, a job well done. And that meant a lot to me. It's an interesting take, isn't it, Adrian? Because it's the opposite. I myself have been one of those who's written the Augusta Syndrome story and all sorts of guises many times over the years. And I do believe that there is there is something problematic about the almost perfect presentation of the course year in and year out, which is it's not to decry those who create it, which is an extraordinary effort and an amazing task. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's an issue of what that dishes up. I think that's broader than just Augusta, though, I th- and I do think that the golf we see on television generally paints a picture of the game, which is not necessarily healthy for expectations of golfers. Having said that, I do take the point of what you say, and you're right. It'd be awful to be a member of the Augusta National staff, and all you ever read is, you do your job so well that we hate you. That's awful, <laughs> and that's not sort of how it's generally intended, I don't think. But that take, Adrian, is Matthew just being contrarian for the sake of it, or do we miss something nuanced in the discussion about what Augusta National shows us each year? No, I, I think it's a the great sort of kernel of an idea that you can take to a, a bunch of different places. Like this, I'm obsessed with this concept of perfectly imperfect. Like I, I think that's look at you. <laughs> I think that's a fantastic thing to. Uh, aspire to like you know let's take a path okay <laughs> here we go like, like this a, is good a sort of broken up path like i i often think of the path that leads away from the ninth to royal melbourne west mm-hmm. it's it's all sandy and broken up turf and it's actually kind of perfect but you can you can manage that imperfect path in a with a, an attention to detail that matthew's talking about it doesn't have to be all squared edges and mm-hmm. uh, you know clipped turf. It can be broken up turf with just the right amount of broken up turf, just the right amount of sand. It, it's you know can be great to walk on. It can be you know the water can be running away from it, all that sort of stuff. So there's this concept of it doesn't what whatever it is, whatever your aim, whatever aesthetic you're aiming for, you can apply an attention to detail to that, which is. Augusta standard attention to detail. You can't. You can't. You don't have the resources to it 
attain Augusta level perfection, or we should say April Augusta level perfection, because um, as we saw, um, refreshingly, November Augusta isn't like that. And it's interesting that another one of the articles that is sort of a a go-to at every other time of the year or in the lead up to the Masters is... Did you know what the what Augusta National looks like at other times of the year? That's that's a bit of a staple article as well. It's on you, know, you see that come up every now and then on golf club, golf club atlas or something like that. So, uh, and it's always astounding that it looks so average. And but they've got different objectives, and I think that's worth noting as well that it's not a three hundred and sixty five day a year member course. I think we often look at Augusta in April and think to ourselves wow, they must keep it like that all year. That's amazing that they keep it like that all year long because we're applying our own That's experience right. of our own golf club where that is the objective of the superintendents is to sort of have relatively consistent conditions, especially in a temperate climate like we are in Sydney, um, to have relatively consistent conditions all year round. We think to ourselves, that, that must be the objective of every green staff. But then we realise, oh, no, actually, they, they are very, very highly optimised for April. And in order to achieve that perfection in April, a lot is sacrificed yeah, throughout the rest of the yeah, year. They've got an awful lot going for them in that. Matthew, it strikes me that what we what we as golfers say to you as superintendents is we create the perfect, um, perfect impossibility for you, don't we? We say to you on one hand that we want the golf course to always look and play amazingly. And then on the other hand, we tell you that Augusta's too perfect. <laughs> so once you get there, you've done the wrong thing. I, I imagine you sort of feel some of that from time to time. That's that broader picture. We're doing. Not Augusta National specific, but that broader picture, I imagine. Well, you know, it was interesting. As Adrian was given his path analogy, uh, I consider and tell you that we have a few holes where the path from the tee leading to the fairway cuts through what we would call a native or a natural area. I've got a little over 20 acres of these these uh, unmowed areas that are primarily a mixture of fine fescues and broom sedge and blue stem, et cetera. And they're, for the most part, what I would call a, a well-worn path. Uh, they're not exactly straight. They kind of zigzag their way down the hill and up the hill and across the streams. And there's a little bit of bare ground here and there, just from all the foot traffic. And at one of our recent committee meetings, our, our the Green Committee meets once a month, and we've been meeting over Zoom ever since March due to COVID. And that came up as a point of discussion about uh, one of the members of the committee mentioned some bare ground that was visible on the path leading from the 12th tee to the 12th green. And he wanted to know what it, you know, when I was planning on doing something about it. And my comment was, well, we can patch those areas, but, you know, going back to our renovation and the architect, you know, he stated that the vision was these areas should most closely resemble a well-worn path because the golf course dates back to the late 20s and the property was a dairy farm before it was converted into a golf course. And he thought that tight tied in more closely to the property history. And my comment was, uh, do we want to change that vision? Uh, If if that's what you want, that's fine, but we just need to make that clear that that original standard of well-worn path has changed going forward. And then I think the comment by and large that I got in return was they had forgotten that that was the fact. And so... I think a lot of times what happens is as you make improvements across the golf course, the eye is looking for something that's out of place. And a little bit of bare ground is what was out of place. And in our case, the bare ground was sort of on a, on a well-worn path that's completely out of play. And so, um, yeah, you're right, Rod. I mean, w- superintendents all the time will talk about golfer expectations and golfer expectations. And, and we'll kind of bemoan to ourselves that, that maybe the expectations are, are unrealistic, but I don't know that they're really unrealistic. It's just that uh, professional televised golf doesn't do us a lot of favors mm-hmm. week in and week out yeah. because each week you're watching the best players in the world compete on a stage that is most likely in peak condition 
and the cameras aren't on those golf courses three weeks later when the uh, grandstands come down and and so forth. So I should mention at this point that Rod wrote a piece as well, which we'll link to in the show notes. That oh, you're very free with this linking in the yeah, show. that's I right. Know it's it's good. I, do it. I, I'm not, I don't see you taking a note that you've got to actually link this in the show notes, um, and uh, that'll be uh, so. So that the 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 gist of that article, if I can summarise it quickly, was just that uh, you know thanking Augusta for showing a few imperfections. You know, there was the bit of you know Bermuda still showing through on the twelfth and chewed up tees and. Uh, Various runoff areas that were a bit muddy and oh, sorry, no, they, they had the organic, organic, organic was, matter. Yeah, I, I think Augusta didn't look. Well, I think that the line I think that said it for me that was yeah, like a supermodel without makeup. It lost nothing by showing its imperfections. Mm-hmm. That's that was my take as a golfer. I thought, yeah, uh, yeah. The, I'll get you to explain. Let's actually, talk about the the, the condition. Actually. The, before we come to that, you've yeah. got there's a rabbit hole there we might come back to. Uh, I think Matthew, what I think you've raised with that discussion about the bear patch that i think is how great classic golf courses slowly but surely 50 years later you look in hindsight and you say this is not what the original designers intended nobody's had a master plan to take the original design and change it but bit by bit it gets chipped away at doesn't it that's an excellent thing you've done there by reminding at that very start well if we do this it takes us down a path where we weren't necessarily intending to go those unintended content. It's also That's- a bit seasonal, right? Like that that grass is going to, you know, patch back mm. over on its own at certain times a year, and then it's going to get a bit bare at certain times a yeah. year. And part of I think attention to detail is knowing when it's gone a bit too far one way or the other. That's yeah, being other- aware. That's really interesting. I mean, because nobody said let's take Jones and McKenzie's intention for Augusta National and change it completely. And over time, we can see that that's what's happened in many parts of the golf course. But it was never some overarching plan. It was just bit by bit, things get chipped away. It doesn't feel like you're sort of giving up much to, to make this change. But when the whole thing gets added up, the changes are quite dramatic. The uh, bunker shapes at Augusta are probably a pretty good example. Yeah, They're pretty lifeless, boring-looking shapes. The seventh hole at Augusta National is a prime yeah. example from a the seventh, yeah. drive-ish, a ball par four, to what it is now, which is much more- It's an extreme, extreme example. Sort of hole, yeah. So that's really interesting. That's a really interesting sort of insight there, Matthew. Um, what did you just say? You, you asked Matthew your question. I took us down a rabbit hole, but you were asking Matthew a question that I've now completely forgotten. I was just saying that those patches in the, the path. Well, well, welcome to the Path Talk podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly uh, right. But the patches in the path are kind of seasonal where, yeah, yeah. They, at certain times. I mean, that's what I see at Royal Melbourne where mm-hmm. you, you might see the ground breaking up a little bit, but you think to yourself, well, that's, that's fine because that cooch is going to come and – Get get take hold a little bit more at certain times a year, and you'll be walking on grass before you know it, and then it'll break up again, and then it'll. It's a living, breathing thing, of exactly. course, isn't it, Matthew? And we think that we can just impose our will on it at any given time. We can't, can we? We as golfers often forget that. I suspect. I like to use the phrase "living, breathing thing" quite often in my blog updates, and I like to remind the membership that you know, it's seasonal. Uh, yes. You know, Charlotte, North Carolina is in the southeast, but uh, we're also in what's called the southern edge of the transition zone. And the transition zone is this unique beltway in the U.S. where 12 months out of the year is not ideal for warm season grass or cool season grass. And so you kind of end up with this sort of hybrid, if you will. Uh, We have Bermuda grass on our tees and fairways and primary rough. And we have bent grass on our putting surfaces. And certain times of the year is more ideal for one over the other. And it's, so if you're, if you're one of those members that, that's fortunate enough to come out and play three, four days a week, or in the case of COVID-19, seven days a week, <laughs> it's, it's actually six because we're closed on Mondays. But uh, – uh, the golf course needs a rest, even if the golfers don't, said old Tom Morris. But um, so ex- exactly, the uh, it's not going to play the same from one day to the next, from one week to the next, from one month to the next, et cetera. And it, but I think that's one of the beauties of the game. I mean, a golf course would be boring if every time you played it, it was always the same. And the fact that you get different conditions 
different environments, different temperatures, different different weathers, sun, wind, cold, rain. Uh, it's just one of the greatest things about this game. It's remarkable how much a golf course changes even during the day. Like, I, and this must be something you experience. You're, uh, I, I'm jealous of, of this actually. That you you must experience this almost every day in your work is arriving very early at a golf course and then seeing the weather build up during the day and or you know gets hot and a lot of direct light and then cools down again or whatever. Like there's there's a lot that happens within a day and it's something that I think every golfer should experience once or or twice is to to be out on a golf course and play you know 54 holes or something like that. Like start early in the morning and be out there all day. Um, I, I did it with the, the Cancer Council thing a couple of years ago. And it was my biggest takeaway from the day where we play. It's this thing, you, you play 72 holes in a day. And my biggest takeaway from that day was arriving at dawn and then seeing the character of the course change as we went through those four rounds in a single day. You're arriving at different holes in completely different conditions. And it was almost like playing four different courses. And uh, it, it was very enjoyable, actually, sort of going through those phases of the day. And it was a pretty normal day. It wasn't like wild winds or anything like that. It was just the, the sunlight hitting the, the, the fairways in different spots and the temperature changing and a little bit of wind coming up and a little bit of light rain and stuff in spots during the day. And it was just a, it was a, wonderful, it was a wonderful thing. I think that's true of those of us who live in urban environments, isn't it? Matthew, there really is no climate or weather in an urban environment you go from your car to your office to your house where it's all sort of controlled to be comfortable one of the things you notice when you do go outside and spend a lot of time outside when you're not used to it is that that the weather does change and things are different depending on the time i think uh, adrian makes a great point there you must have you got a favorite time of day to be on the golf course well ironically i mean the sunrises are always something that you just consider to be a blessing, but I think it's the gloaming mm-hmm. that late afternoon sun and as the day is coming to an end, that's even more remarkable and, and more breathtaking. Um, you were talking there just a second ago about the, the weather. And I had a member one time say to me that he felt I talked about the weather too much in the blog and he, and it was usually typically up, up near the top. So he just always skipped, skipped down. <laughs> And I I explained to him, I said, well, I just want you to understand the whole reason why there's always some kind of weather-related update in there is because it it paints the picture. Because if you're out here playing golf and you think the course is soft and slow, well, I can guarantee you it's not because I've been irrigating. It's because we had rain and we probably had a substantial amount of rain. Um. And so I'm. I had. You'll love this, Adrian. Uh, we we had a summer a few years back that was a little bit of a what I would call a wet summer. So the golf course was lush and green. And I had a member in the parking lot approach me, and he says, "Matthew, I know you like to say you like to control the water, but I got news for you." And I was like, "What's that, sir?" And he goes, "It's never looked this good when you were in control." <laughs> Oh, I just, I just laughed and I said, well, thank you, sir. That's probably the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. Uh, because, I mean, if, you know, if we do go through an extended dry period, of course, we're going to irrigate, you know, the turf to ensure that it can recover and withstand the, the traffic and the playability. But it's going to get a little crispy on the edges. There's probably going to be uh, some random brown spots here or there, whether it be on the tees or in the fairways. And who doesn't enjoy 35 to 50 yards of extra roll on their Mm -hmm. tee shot? It's going to play firm. It's going to play fast. It's going to play the way our original architect, Donald Ross, intended. But, you know, um, Americans being what they are, they they do like that that lush Augusta green color. Uh, Maybe maybe we should blame high-definition television. (laughs) It's not just Americans, I can assure you. It's a worldwide phenomenon, including in places in the UK. I think that plugs into something interesting about golfers. And I often always think about this whole podcasting thing. You know, we do State of the Game and State of the Game in particular was started. The whole genesis of that was how do we educate golfers about there's lots of people who play golf who never give it much thought and golf gets served up to them like a consumer product. 
They turn up. Here's the product. Consume it. And there's not much education about a product that really isn't that simple. It do- the golf courses don't come off a manufacturing line where each one is the same as the next or even the same one is the same. How do we sort of educate golfers? One of the beauties of the game is when you start to realise that it's not just a mass-produced product that gets dished up to you, Matthew. It is a living, breathing thing. Those things can be exciting and more interesting than a golf course that looks the same all the time or four days of Augusta National in perfect condition in April. But how do we start to spread that message? Is everybody open to it? Well, you, you know, so going back to the Masters, I, I think one of the greatest things about the Masters being played in November this year is it would have been the easiest thing in the world for Chairman Ridley and that membership to do is to say, there's no Masters. You we'll see you in 2021. Very much so, yeah. But, you know, to their credit, they went ahead and uh, opened up the golf course. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, you know, fans, patrons weren't able to be on the grounds, but we all got to watch it. We got to see some unique angles with the drone footage and then with no patrons on the ground and, and no grandstands, mm-hmm. no patron stands, you got to see more of the golf course and more of the architecture than we've ever seen. And then, you know, the overseed is probably less than two months old or right at two months old. So it's still somewhat juvenile. It's not fully grown in and matured. You're you're seeing as much, if not more, Bermuda grass in that uh, sward than you've ever seen. The players earlier in the week were talking about it. I remember Justin Thomas in his one of his press conferences early in the week was talking about there was more Bermuda than what they were accustomed to, and it was going to affect shots from around the greens, et cetera. And then as the tournament started to play out, and you started to see things like that. The tee box on two, which sits way back in the shade, or just off the back of the 12th green, mm-hmm. just off the back of the 13th mm-hmm. green, where they stay, it stays so shady. And because it's so shady, the ryegrass is still a little thin, and that base Bermuda didn't really have any color. Uh, the 13th tee box, by the, by the time we got to Saturday and Sunday, was really starting to show the effects of the intense foot traffic in a shady environment mm-hmm. uh, that's that's staying damp. That's the other thing. With all the rain they got on Thursday, uh, that got you know that golf course will dry out much faster in April than it ever will in November. Mm-hmm. And that's all got to do with uh, the shorter day length, the lower sun angle, etc. So I, I had been asked probably a month ago by someone else. That was just like, you know, what's one thing you could think of that might be different? And I just said, well, if if the course gets wet, it'll take much longer to dry out because I see that at my own course this time of year, every year. And so um, I just the fact that we were all able to see that and that's kind of what led into this little discussion, which I think led us into me being on with you guys today was just. Uh, it's refreshing to see, and I, I hope that the golfing public saw that that perfection we're all accustomed to in April doesn't exist 52 weeks a year. But again, hats off to Augusta National for exposing themselves to the golfing mm-hmm. public and for the world to see, because uh, it would have been real easy for them to just say, we'll see you in 2021. Much easier, in fact. It would have been the easiest decision yeah. to not have it. Yeah. It seems to me like they almost pulled it off too. If it hadn't had that much rain, yeah. it would have it would have looked almost like April. Like that that amount of rain they had is what I think contributed a little bit to the chewing up of those shady teas and one hundred percent. I would say. Well, that's right. And and the the catch basins were a little bit muddy. And I'm oh, sorry, I've done that again. Muddy. The um had uh, organic matter in the organic catch basins. That's right. Um, but the. Uh, uh, yeah, they, they, other than that, I, I don't think you really would have noticed that condition of the 12th that much. It, like, to me, it looked pretty bloody perfect, to be honest. Um, but uh, Well, yeah. didn't it? Well, I, I think the biggest thing, it didn't really affect the play, did it? At no stage did we have somebody at a crucial moment. With uh, a mud ball? Well, no. D- get a, DJ get, on. 
Yeah, no, get it on 13. But no, we get a terrible line perhaps behind the 12th green in some sort of patchy grass that was unplayable. We never saw any of that. So that was, uh, which is sort of an edge. It might not look All the pine straw in the bunkers was, I found a bit uh, triggering actually, all that pine straw in the bunkers. Oh, I didn't didn't notice that. There was pine straw, especially when the wind came up on day four, it was blowing pine straw in the bunkers. And uh, you could tell, like, they'd they'd lost it. They'd (laughs) (laughs) lost control of the golf course. It was out of control. They they couldn't actually manage that pine straw. It It was beyond their control. Control to actually get it out of the bunkers, uh, which is, is something you n- just never see there. Like that, that more than anything, I found a little bit disturbing for the week. I was like, oh wow, they they would love to get that pine straw out of the bunker, but they they can't. There's too much. <laughs> Goodness me, the things you notice. Well, well the uh, other days they didn't have pine straw in the bunker. It was yeah. just when the wind came up. Which brings us neatly, I think, Matthew, to what you've written this year about the Masters, which is some of what I think you've probably just touched on, which a lot of us have spoken about, uh, and just that. I think this year's Masters has been really important in breaking that Augusta Syndrome idea. Ironically, I think you can appreciate perfect Augusta nationally in April that we've spoken about that sparked the Augusta Syndrome. You can appreciate that much more for what it is. And aberration is the wrong word, but, you know, difficult to attain and not sustainable because we've now seen the course in November and even with all of those same resources – uh, the inability to actually produce that same sort of perfect service. I think it's made your point of the column last year even better. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's interesting. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. You know, the I think one of the cool things is, and I tweeted this last night, it was only 144 days until the, until the 2021 Masters. And so um, I think a lot of people will be tuning in in five months and they'll – their eye is going to go to a spot that they recognized was less than ideal this time around. And they're going to want to see what does that spot look like now? What's that tee box look mm-hmm. like? Or what's that area behind that green look like? Or, or what's that landing zone or that catch basin look like? Bry- Bryson will be looking left of the uh, third. <laughs> <Bryson will be. laughs> yeah. I read, I actually, I did not know this, but I ran across an article today that said that uh, someone gave him the ball on the very next hole. Oh yeah, yeah. They found it. Like I think even might he might have been on his way back to the tee when they Ooh. found it. I think. Some, but they found it, and when he got to the fourth tee, uh, they they gave it to him. What did he and do I with think it? He, he bogeyed <laughs> the next two holes. Yeah, yeah. Well, he made a second ball bogey. I never forget. He made a second ball bogey on the on the third. That was I think the that was that was his masters right there. Second ball bogey on the third. Forget the next two bogeys. Just a pro shouldn't have made seven there. They should have made six. Well, I'm guessing that all this Masters talk's probably got you keen to get out for a hit. Now, you'll only have limited control over whether you play good or bad, but you do have 100% control over how you look while you're doing it. Now, while you're listening to the rest of the show, why not surf over to our network sponsor, thegolfsociety.com.au, and check out the latest offerings from some of the most sought-after brands in the game. Apparel from Travis Matthew, Jay Lindeberg, Ralph Lauren, and more. Shoes from Puma, G4, and Under Armour, and all of the accessories you could possibly want. And to add some spice to the deal, you'll get a $25 discount off your first purchase just for being a Talking Golf listener. All you have to do to take advantage of that is log in via the URL thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash golf, just the one G in Talking Golf. link in the show notes below, and get shopping today. Now let's get back to Matthew Wharton and all things golf. So I wonder, Matthew, if there's anything that they would have done to optimise Augusta for this week, which is going to make it harder for them in April. That's an interesting question. Thank you. Um... <laughs> Finally, we've been at this for 57, 56 and a half episodes and you finally asked an interesting yep. question. This is where we find out who's Simon and who's Garfunkel in this podcast. <laughs> well, analogy. I mean, you know, first and foremost, I'm, i got to clarify, I've never worked there. I, I don't have any, you know, behind the scenes or, or inner knowledge, et cetera, I, other than just knowing some people that have worked there on the volunteer team. Uh, but I would think that what they were trying to achieve this year would just be what any of us would be trying to achieve. And that is you want to get the best conditions possible on any given day. And you're dealing in November with a, with a shorter day uh, and, and uh, a more, a more tender playing surface, if you will, as it relates to the overseeded turf. And the greens for the most part, you know, if you, if you think back to, um, 
earlier in the week because because I typically for the I'll I geek out I watch live from every night and I listen to all the player interviews etc. And the players were commenting that the greens were a little slower than they anticipated. Um, it, this was even early in the week before the rain came on Thursday, and I noticed from some of the footage that it looked as if they were tr- they knew the rain was coming. It was forecasted, and I think they were preparing for it by by trying to get the course as dry as they could because a few of the greens even on Wednesday. We're showing a little signs of discoloration, this is indicating some like some localized drying, etc. They knew the rain was coming, but the rain was just too much. I mean, a three-hour delay. I think we all saw the footage of the golf course. Mm-hmm. Just um, really it was it was it. intense. Yeah. yeah. And then at that point, you're you know that's the hand you're dealt, and that you just have to make the most of it. And that's just the way it is in professional golf. Um, we don't always get the perfect weather every time around but the, the the great thing about augusta national and, and brad owen and his team is they truly are the best of the best or the rock stars of our industry and i guarantee you come april we're not going to see anything that's an indicator that oh this is a problem that reverts back to the november playing of the tournament they will overcome any and all obstacles high traffic areas will be corrected they'll be perfect I'll never forget when the, a few years ago when they lost the Eisenhower tree. Do you remember when they <laughs> yeah, lost the, the Eisenhower tree the in the winter? Frost, yeah. I think it was the winter prior to 2014. I was uh, I was fortunate enough. My wife and I had an opportunity to attend the first round that year, that Thursday, and I'd almost I had walked completely past where the Eisenhower tree used to be before I realized <laughs> that I'd walked past it. Yeah. And I mean that, tr- and that tree came down in what was that? It was like January, or February, and the event was played in two in two months' time. Yeah, you couldn't tell it. That's that's just how good they are at what they do. The the one I love is the the apparently one year they moved the first tee back, and they moved whatever tree was adjacent to it as well. <laughs> so that you still <laughs> tee off from under the same tree. Yeah. So you didn't even know. Yeah. And there might have been a couple of little structures there as well. The whole thing got moved back and nobody could really tell. So that's a resource thing. They've got the resources to do those kind of things because moving trees is not a cheap thing to do. As you would know, Matthew, probably having never done it because you'd be frightened to even get a quote to do it. You know, and and shipping in trees that are already mature and 60 feet high and the planting 11, them, yeah. th- that's not an easy thing. That, that really does come down to just budget. But some of that other stuff, as you say, is really about the best minds in the game hell of a high pressure job there couldn't be a more high pressure job than being the superintendent at augusta national could there matt i mean it would be fantastic in so many ways but my goodness there'd be a burden in many ways too i would think the expectations would be off the charts you think your members expect something <laughs> oh i i agree wholeheartedly i mean i think it's easy for anyone in the business to, to daydream or, mm-hmm. or or play that you know what if game or or wonder what it would like be like to be the superintendent at a place like Augusta National or a Royal Melbourne or an old course of St. Andrews. But at the same time, it's like, uh, yeah, I, I can't imagine <laughs> what the level of expectation and, and, and stress would be. Well, the personal responsibility that course supers take, anybody who's taken the time to get to know almost any golf course superintendent, their course tends to be a very personal mission. Mm-hmm. It's a calling. It's not a job. Uh, I know the core, a core superintendent here at Sydney some years ago, we had a crazy hot Christmas day. I think it was going to be about 45, 46 degrees Celsius. It was ridiculous. And he went out at 4 o'clock in the morning on Christmas Day mm-hmm. uh, to do some watering and get the, the prepared so that the course would survive so they didn't come de- back on Boxing Day and find the course essentially dead. There are not many jobs that people would do that, uh, and certainly it's not something that just – Money can motivate you to do. There's got to be something more to it. So if you're if you're in charge of Augusta National, that's a you know that's a twenty four seven job, isn't it, Matt? There's no time off from that, is there? That's your life, really. No, I mean you know being a golf course. My major professor in graduate school, he used to refer to it as the turf gene. Either you have the turf gene mm-hmm. or you don't. Yeah. Uh, we we talk a lot in the business about passion, and you have to have a, a certain passion. Uh, I think you use the word calling. Um, you know, the unique thing about being a golf course superintendent is you will absolutely love and care for and defend and preserve and protect with your life a piece of property that you do not own. <laughs> and that's and yeah. that is very unique. Yeah. We 
we take internal ownership of something that we do not own. Somebody else owns it, whether it's the course owner or maybe it's owned by a corporation or it's owned by the membership, mm-hmm. whatever, you know, depends upon the classification of the golf course. But we're not the property owner, but we lie awake at night sometimes uh, as a storm hits or as the temperature exceeds a certain threshold and we're thinking, oh my goodness, I've probably got to spray tomorrow for disease, et cetera. We, it consumes us. It really does. There really is no such thing as off. Uh, because when you're not there, your mind is always wondering about the golf course or, or something about it. It's stressful. And, um, yeah. I can imagine the stress with that. I always, I, I think, uh, it's, again, it's something people can relate to in their jobs. Like I do a lot of project work and you're never done with that. Like you go home and there's, you know, there's always months of work ahead on whatever project you're working on or whatever five projects you're working on. And uh, I, I find that sort of I often think fondly back to when I was at university and I was you know, waiting on tables. And the most stressful thing that might happen to me after work was I might wake up in the middle of the night and realize I've forgotten to take the bread rolls to table five. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. Like you really leave your work yeah. at work when, yeah. you're, when you're doing something where it's transactional like that and it's, yeah, yeah. it's completed. And there's this stress that you carry with you everywhere you go when you're actually taking on a job where you're doing an ongoing thing. So why, I think you're right, but why do we do it? Is the level of satisfaction achieved from doing a job like that, doing it well, the moment of not stress, worth all the stress prior to it and the stress that's to come for those small moments, a little bit like golf itself, isn't it? All of the bad shots are made worth it by the one good or the two good or the one good round. It's interesting because before I started this studio here, my options were, as freelance work was drying up elsewhere, was try and start a venture like this of my own or go and become a bus driver. Mm-hmm. And there was a real appeal to the bus driver, having spent my working life predominantly in media, where you can go to work at a defined time and leave work at a defined time, and that's it. The rest of the time is your own. So I wonder what drives us in that way. I, mean, I found this and ended up going this, and I'm glad I did. Not that I would have been necessarily unhappy as a bus driver, but I find this much more fulfilling despite the constant stress, as mm-hmm. you talk about agency. It's, it's an interesting – it's interesting. I wonder if it's, it's a certain type of person, Matt. I don't think it's just the turf gene maybe necessarily. Maybe it's the stress gene that we've got and we just pick our path as to which, which specific industry we fall into maybe. Well, well, you know, one of the interesting things is it's, it's funny how there doesn't seem to me at least to be one particular personality type. Uh, in the golf course superintendent profession. I, I mean, there's there's introverts, there's extroverts, there's people that love to play golf, there's people that don't particularly enjoy playing golf, but they're great at growing grass, they have a passion for the outdoors, uh, they're good agronomists, uh, they're good people managers. There's there's something there's a little bit of something for everyone. Mm. Uh, it's so it, it's kind of unique in that way that that we're not just all one personality type. Uh, but for me, you know, I kind of came to it sort of uh, in a roundabout way because uh, my original uh, college education, I studied to be an engineer. I, I graduated from uh, Virginia Tech with a bachelor's degree in industrial and systems engineering and then never went to work in the field. Uh, I went back home after graduation to tend to my mother who was recuperating from surgery and I'd been home about six weeks and the guy from the golf course where I used to work that was helping me earn money to pay my way through school called to say, hey, I heard you were back in town. I could use some help. You want to come back up here? And I, I went back and was up there for another three and a half years before I decided to go back to school and, and pursue a degree in agronomy. Um we all kind of find our way to it in, in, in sort of these weird, weird ways. I meet way more people that are, that are like that. You know, it wasn't their, uh, you know, I don't know too many people in the business that at the age of 10 said, I want to be a golf course superintendent yeah. or I want to be a greenkeeper. Yep. And that's what they wanted to do from day one. Um, James Bledge at, at Royal Sink Ports might be the only one that I know of. But uh, anyway, yeah, it's... Um, it's a passion. 
I I love the game of golf just as much as I love the art of greenkeeping. Mm-hmm. And there is just, I mean, I, I get excited driving to work in the morning and it is pitch black dark out. Uh, you know, Adrian was talking about getting to the course early, but, you know, I, I get to the course long before the sun comes up. So I get to see the sunrise every day. Some days are, especially in the summer months, I get to see the sunset as well. And although they are long and grueling, God, they're so rewarding. Um, And I think that was one of the other things about, you know, my early days, you know, when I was 19 years old and working at a golf course back home in Virginia, Lake Bonaventure Country Club, there was something about around, it was magic. Every week around three o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, the golf course just started to shine. It just took on this sort of unique sparkle and you're and as you're taking that in you're no it's it's instantaneous gratification you're like it it looks the way it does because of the effort i've put forth all week and so there's there's just a tremendous amount of gratification that's interesting that you can get some instant gratification because i often think for for what you do you're laying some turf or putting some seed in the ground and you've got to wait months to get the, <laughs> to, to get see the if you've outcome. got it right that's right um, I mean, and i I'd have, I'd have thought that's incredibly frustrating yeah. but yeah i mean the i guess the accumulation of work that you know at any given time has been done in the past you are sort of constantly seeing the rewards for what you did you know six months ago or something it's funny you should say that because i i worked for i was an assistant for a gentleman by the name of rick owens and Rick is still a superintendent up in Northern Virginia at a club called Laurel Hill. But when I was Rick's assistant at Augustine Golf Club back in the day, he used to always say, all right, you see that area? We're going to seed it. And then I'm like, okay. And then a few weeks later, he, he'd say, well, let's just put some plugs in it. And then a few weeks after that, he'd say, oh, just sod it. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, That's brilliant. He, always, he would always- I would totally be doing that too. You, right. And you would just think to yourself, like, well, why don't we just sod it to begin with and be done with it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic stuff. I'd be checking in. It's like, you know, you can, you can send a tweet and start getting likes immediately. Like, yeah, that's exactly there, right. It's got to be- Sit yeah. there refreshing for that. One last thing I wanted to ask you about Augusta National in particular in this Masters in November, uh, Matthew. Most people noticed and commented on the rough, much longer than we normally see it, uh, noticeably so. Uh, I wonder, is there an agronomic reason for that? Is it to do with overseeding and some of those sorts of things? I, I sort of read a couple of bits and pieces that hinted at that. And of course, I didn't read them all because that would have taken some effort. But was there an agronomic reason why the rough would have been point, that way? The point you know? of order, second cut. Sorry, second cut. I honestly don't think so. I, too, was kind of caught by surprise to, to notice that the second cut was a little taller and thicker than we're accustomed to seeing. And uh, I'm not really sure what was sort of the reasoning behind that. And so, you know, I certainly wouldn't want to, to speculate. But I don't think there was anything agronomic related to it. Uh, it it's quite possible that perhaps playing a November Masters was an opportunity for the tournament committee to just do a little bit of experimentation. I mean, I think one of the unique things was we got a lot of chatter yesterday over the fact that they didn't use a traditional uh, hole location on 16. 16. Mm. And, and so maybe the, uh, you know, the higher height of cut in the second cut was just an, an experimentation. Mm. I, I guess we'll find out come April. Mm. I, uh, Jeff Shackelford described it perfectly in his blog. He said it had a grow-in look, like it still it still sort of looked hairy and a little bit wispy at the tops of the leaf. That it just well, and you know, Adrian, the the other thing too is it's it's quite possible that once they got the rain that they got on on Thursday, I'm pretty sure they weren't able to cut it. Just yeah. couldn't get a mower in there. That's couldn't right. They couldn't get a mower on it for for at least a couple of days. I didn't see it widely talked about, but I did notice one camera angle on the 11th hole. There was a swath of that fairway that did not get mowed. I just don't remember if that was on Thursday's coverage or Friday's coverage. I'm going to get, I'm thinking maybe it was Friday's coverage. There was a camera angle on the 11th hole that was looking uh, back, you know, from the green back towards the fairway. 
So it would have been on, you know, the screen's right, uh, the left side of the fairway. You could tell by the color that there was a swath there that they had they had gone around. Uh, you know, by the next day, they were able to mow over that. But uh, the ground was just again, that wasn't something that got widely talked about. But, you know, it's it's quite possible that the amount of rain they got just pr- prohibited them from being able to put mowers on the rough. Yeah, you know, Occam's razor, the, the simple explanation did. is often the correct one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. or yeah. too wet, couldn't do it. Yeah, possibly. The yeah. Um, it's funny, you know. One of the things my wife pointed out to me as she watched the coverage a good bit was uh, she was not a big fan of the drone shots for the simple fact that a lot of times if the drone, if the camera was looking straight down, you could just see way too many tire marks. In the yes. turf. Oh, yes, you, thank you, you. You've touched an, a oh, low yes. nerve there. It's up there with paths. Yes. Uh, like, And that shows up even more. There's two things, I think, that contribute to tyre marks showing up. Or in the case this week at Augusta, it was even foot marks. Like, just even foot marks through the rough were showing up. First of all, because they had rough and that that rough is like a monoculture. And uh, secondly, because they're striving for such perfection. Like... Perfection is ruined by tiny imperfections. Mm-hmm. It's an all or nothing pr- proposition, perfection. And it, like a tiny imperfection, has an outsized impact on the look. Another one perfect. That's right. Perfect, yeah. That's right. It goes from being 100% to being like 60% or something. Whereas if something's uniformly imperfect in a beautiful way, like there's this Japanese concept of wabi sabi, which is perfectly imperfect. And if something, and I think Royal Melbourne sort of has this aesthetic where it's perfectly in, imperfect. There's there's mottled colours, everything's beautiful, and a tiny imperfection doesn't have any effect at all on the part on of Royal the Melbourne. overall perfection in a funny way. Exactly. Whereas Augusta, I think my takeaway from this week to some extent is that Augusta level perfection, that April Augusta level perfection, is impossible even for Augusta at other times of the year. Yeah, mm. that's. Perf- uh, perfectly stated. See, okay, nothing, nothing more to be said on that. Then this has so. been your real coming out yep. episode. Isn't it, man? <laughs> two, two compliments from I, one guest. I have a question. Uh, another question. Well, you, you're earning yourself a, an invite back, by the way, Matthew. With this, oh yeah, very, very <laughs> yeah, yeah. All you got to do is butter um, Adrian yeah, up, and you'll be okay. <laughs> uh, just on that, you, you saw a little bit longer fairway cut there in one spot on the eleventh fairway. Um, I've something I've observed at at the course that I play at here in Sydney, that when COVID first uh, emerged, they stopped mowing the fairways as tight just because they were looking to do a little less maintenance. There was less time for the staff to be on the course. And one of the things they did is they just let the the grass relax a little bit. And I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on that because, uh, to me, a lot of courses strive to have uh, the grass you know, way too tight. And I, I like firm and fast, but I must admit, when, when the grass had been let out a few millimetres at the course where I play, it felt everything felt so much more chilled out. Like, you could tell that the, the, the leaf wasn't under any sort of stress and it was just, uh, it, it actually looked a lot better because it, it kind of looked a tiny bit lusher and uh, it just, you could tell that it was, wasn't under as much stress. And I felt like it played exactly the same. We go through that here. Every year, um, so we have Bermuda grass, which I guess is most closely related to your your cooch uh, cooch grass there in Australia, and so it goes dormant in the winter months. Uh, we don't overseed it, um, and um, we don't paint it either. Uh, that <laughs> I almost was, asked you if you don't paint. Nah, please don't. Believe it or, Rod's believe, team believe it or not, there are some paint. golf courses here in the U.S. that do paint dormant Bermuda grass for the winter months. But um, so what we typically do in the spring as the grass is first sort of emerging from dormancy is we like to mow it really low, really tight. We want to get as much of that uh, dormant material off of it and give the plant room to grow. Uh, Allow that sunlight to get down and penetrate the canopy and the grass wakes up. And we typically mow it the closest and the shortest at the beginning of the year. And then as the season progresses, we slowly just keep chipping away and and, and raising that height of cut a little bit incrementally at a time. 
And there always seems to be a spot somewhere around about, oh, the middle of June when all of a sudden I'll get some comments from the players about, did you raise a height on the fairways? Now, we may have already come up two or three times by this point, but we finally, we've, we've reached that sweet spot for them where it's noticeable. It, you Just like you described, the, it's like the plant relaxes a little bit. Uh, so it's a little more turf under the ball, but it's still uh, a tight enough lie that the, the low handicappers are, are happy. It's like that little magic sweet spot, if you will. And then, again, because where we're located in the U.S. and our climate and the winters that we can experience, we'll continue to come up even more as we get into this part of the season. We want to have a little more plant material there as the plant prepares for winter dormancy because essentially that leaf blade is just a big giant solar panel so the more leaf surface we have the more photosynthesis has taken place and the, you know the more energy the plant can can produce and store um, for the winter so interesting but yeah you're exactly right gets, now is there less disease and less, less fungus and that sort of thing I'm sorry. What? Oh, is there? Sorry, I interrupted you there. Is there is there less disease and less fungus if the leaf is a little bit longer? Yes, everything is healthier. A little bit. It's the same with putting green. Man, the, you know, the tight, the lower and the tighter we mow our bent grass putting greens, the more stress we put the plant under, and the more susceptible it, it becomes to to disease and pest outbreak. And so, usually, one of the first things you do, like you know, with bent grass, it's all about summer stress, and when the plant starts to get stressed in the summer the the first reactionary response we take is well we just we just raise the mowers you know give it give it a little more surface area so it can produce a little more energy and it can withstand the uh the pressures of whether it's a, a pest or a fungus etc yeah that's good stuff uh, just there's a i want to give a plug to garrett morrison's fried egg story uh from i think last week where he talked about just green and green grass and uh, the obsession with green grass and really approached it from every angle. I thought it was an excellent episode. Everyone should listen to that. And Rod's going to put that in the show notes as well. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> oh, that, that was an excellent piece. Yeah. I replied it? to that with um, yep. with a, uh, a funny little story that my major professor shared with me uh, not too long after I had graduated. Um, um I'll send it to you guys. You'll get a kick out of it. Okay. That's just for us. Just for us. Not, not, for, the not for general publication? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can put it in the show notes. <laughs> I can put it in the show notes. Yeah, why don't you add some stuff to the show notes list for me, Matthew? That's a terrific idea. Uh, nicely, nicely done. That notion of that uh, obsession with green, here's something interesting. that You probably wouldn't have seen this, Matthew, but you would have, Adrian. There's been a whole thing about a public golf course here in Melbourne that during COVID lockdown, obviously wasn't being used as a golf course, a bunch of the local non-golf residents cut a hole in the fence and started using the place to wander around and have picnics. And that's become a whole uh, point of contention, as you'd imagine, about what the golf course is going to be going forward. There's talk of cutting off three holes to give to the local community. However, what's really interesting about that is something that I hadn't thought of. The appeal of the grass, the nicely cut grass and well-maintained golf course landscape for those who don't play golf, that perhaps we as golfers just take for granted mm -hmm. uh, that whole notion of green and grass and what's the appeal. There may be something innate about humans. Oh, yeah. Those of us who look at golf and say, well, brown is beautiful and links golf. And that. That's my preferred look of a golf course. I'd rather look at a golf course on the UK coastline as an aesthetic than look at Augusta National as a or something in Arizona. But that's a minority, and that's a position that you come to over time, I think, through golf. There's a natural inherent appeal, is there not, for people in mm. maintained green grass, Adrian? Yep, uh, I, and I want to get – I've got a very specific thing to ask Matthew about with that – but the yeah, my, I was out photographing the club championships at my club a couple of weeks ago, and the thing that occurs to me whenever I'm watching golf is just what a nice place a golf course is to be when when I'm not walking around obsessed with my game and in a in a hurry to get to the next shot and thinking about what I'm going to do with my next shot, and you know when when you're walking around a course just watching golf, there's opportunities just to linger in a spot. 
even and especially amateur golf where or just at your local club where you're just wandering around the fairways and you can just sort of say to yourself oh, I'm going to stand in the middle of this fairway and watch these shots and I wander across to that other fairway because they're going to come loop back around and I'm going to see them again there and that, that gives me the opportunity just to stand in the middle of this fairway for five minutes which I never get to do and just look around and enjoy it and you might be standing next to someone and having a nice chat and the opportunity to be on a golf course when you're not playing golf is something golfers don't take we never the opportunity do. to do. Never. And but Matthew does it every day, and so I'm interested in Matthew's mm. perspective on that because golf courses we forget they're wonderful places to be. It's it's funny because um, I don't play as much now as I used to. I, I still I still try to get out as often as I can, but I I probably play about a third as much as I used to many years ago. I watch a lot more golf and uh, we, we've got, we're, we're fortunate. We've, we've got a lot of young players, really good players at the club. And I just, I really enjoy just kind of taking a break, pausing and I'll pull up alongside. I'll, I'll watch them hit their tee shots. Sometimes I might drive alongside and have a conversation with one of them and then stop and watch them hit their approach shots from the middle of the fairway. Uh, and anytime we have a club event, especially like our member member or our club championship or our member guest, you know, I'm there on, on site in case of an emergency for, for the duration of the event. So I've kind of got my, my little parking places, uh, scoped out. I, I typically sit up above the 15th green and because from there I can see the third hole, I can see the 16th hole, which are part threes, as well as a play on 15. Or we like to go sometimes and we'll, we'll sit up above the 13th green, which is a reachable par five. And, and we'll watch multiple groups play through. And it's just in, it's just enjoyable. You're exactly right. It's, it's just it's, it's a serene place to be. And it's peaceful. It's pretty to look at. Uh, it, I think it's just soothing and good for the soul. Yeah, and I don't know if we golfers take enough time to appreciate that all too often. We're quite a selfish, insular bunch, aren't we, golfers, Matthew? We we just don't take the time. I think Adrian put it beautifully once in a podcast, the precursor is the I Seek podcast. There's those who look up and those who only look down. There's too many golfers who only ever look down and all they think about is how far they've got to the hole and how they're going to get there in the most efficient way and have the lowest score. It's only one part of the true joy of golf, which is a much better, bigger thing when you look up isn't it it's course design it's course conditions it's being out in that landscape and there's so much more to it than just what, what did tom coin call it the the uh, trying to find the perfect six iron on a track man yeah it's, it's such yeah. a small part of golf yeah, really isn't it there's hitting a golf ball and there's playing golf yeah i feel like or yeah that's or immersing yourself in golf golf you can immerse yourself in like no other uh, sport okay rod i'm gonna break your heart here but i'm i'm gonna tell tell you that Adrian's dead spot on, right on the money again with that head up versus head down, but I'm going to take it to another level. What I typically see here in the U.S. at least is, and this is mostly in the private club sector, is members when playing their home course would fall under the head down category because they tend to take things for granted at their home course because they're just used to it, et cetera. And they just are focused on their game, focused on their match, whatever. And they're not really seeing the bigger picture. But then they get the invite to go to play to play somewhere else as, as a guest. And that entire experience for the day, the head is up. And they're taking everything in from mm. the moment they arrive, the way they're greeted, uh, the experience in the clubhouse, the pro shop, the golf course. And then they'll come back. And usually they'll come back with comments, you know, you know, I was just playing over at such and such last week and I couldn't help but notice that they've got X or they've got Y or they did this or they did that. And a lot of times the things that they're commenting about or they're asking about are no different than what we have or what we provide or what we do. But they just assume it's different or they assume it's better over there for whatever reason because they haven't taken the time to notice it on their own course. And it's just that it's that head down versus head up mentality. And I think a lot of it just stems from, you know, if you're a member at a club and you play it on a regular frequent basis, you just kind of, you kind of gloss all that over and you take it for granted. And 
Uh, you just kind of focus on your score, or your game, or your match, and just you don't take the time to recognize. And that's that's again part of that's what I'm blogging about. I, I want to point out to you all the cool things that mm. that you might not notice because you didn't take the time to. You, you could everywhere where you said golf course there you could just substitute spouse and that could be a, a marriage counseling it's a column. variation on the theme <laughs> of familiarity breeds contempt yeah, is it exactly not? Yeah. it's not quite that strong but it's a variation on that theme you're 100 right now you didn't break my heart with that matthew because in fact so impressed was i with Logue's notion of the look up and look down that i wrote an entire column about it at the time <laughs> because it uh it it struck a chord and i thought it was uh one of well one of the few good ideas he's had and uh, and expressed public so it was good stuff Matthew, I've just had a look at the time, and we've kept you longer than I meant to. It's been fantastic. I note that you are playing the Put This in the Show Notes game beautifully. I've already received a direct message on Twitter from you <laughs> with my, with what needs to be contributed. So at least you take the time to provide. That I makes have to it go too s- easy for him. I've got to go searching for everything that Logue wants. Yeah, in he's got to search notes. for you've, his own article that's that right. I suggested. Him. You've, at, you've at least uh, dished it up for me, which makes it uh, nice. So there are a couple of pictures. I'll have to figure out how to get those into the show notes, but I'll take care of that. Matt, it's been fantastic to have you along, mate. Really appreciate you taking the time. Lovely to chat. Well, I've enjoyed it. It's been a real pleasure. I've uh, I've been a big fan of your all show uh, since the inception, and this has just been a real treat for me. So, you know, anytime you guys want to talk golf, I'm I'm game. Is he is he welcome back, Adrian? Yeah. Has he done enough? Yeah. He, has there been enough logue? admiration to get him back? Uh, don't stop with the sucking up. But yeah, that's- <laughs> you, can, you can continue that on direct messages on Twitter yeah. so the rest of us don't have to endure yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, good to have you along, Adrian. As always, thank you for your contribution. Thank Apart you, from the sandwich, that was... I'm not sure about it. I'm looking. I think I'm on your mum's side. I'm looking. Once about a year. Once a year. You'll have to make me one. I'll try it. Then I can make a proper judgment because it's it's not fair to to to. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I've, I've refined the recipe since last year. My daughter tried it last year and, and thought it was disgusting. And then I, I promised her it would be better this year, and it was. And she enjoyed it. She said that's from that's disgusting good to good. That's a huge yeah. leap. Yeah. Well done. Congratulations. So you did have a big Masters week. Two winners on Masters week. DJ and you. Well done. That's it for episode 57 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. There will be an episode 58, and that will be next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.